0: Welcome to the Happy Saver Podcast. I'm Ruth and I write a personal finance blog right here in New Zealand. And because New Zealand is a really small place, it is seriously more like a village. And the people I seek out are often uncomfortable having their story told in public. You will hear their stories from me and not directly from them. And that's so that they can retain their privacy. Plus, I could talk for an Olympic sport, so by doing it this way you get a greatly edited version of the conversations I've had. And I just chat to people, I learn their story and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. So this is actually the last podcast in this latest series of six, and I've finally made it to Auckland where I was delighted to speak with Jen, a 52-year-old divorced single mum of a 12-year-old whose aim is to retire by the age of 55. She has always been a saver, but it's only been more recently that she worked out that if she directed her energy into a retirement goal, she could actually attain it a lot more quickly than she thought. All it will take is the usual simple steps to financial independence, and that's actually an awful lot of hard work and a lot of dogged determination. But before I tell you all about Jen, I just have a quick word from the team at Hatch. I'm excited to have Hatch supporting today's episode because they make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. Hatch is Kiwi Wealth's investing platform, and as part of the Kiwi Group family, they are 100% Kiwi owned and are committed to helping Kiwis grow their wealth long-term. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love and back the companies you grew up with, like Microsoft and Apple. Or back a green future with groundbreaking brands like Tesla and Beyond Meat. The team behind Hatch is dedicated to helping Kiwis learn that they can get their money working harder. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.AS. Forward slash the happy saver. Jen has a mantra and it's everything is working out perfectly. And she keeps this top of mind throughout each day. So even when her plans derail a bit, as they have done on many occasions over the years, she repeats her mantra and just keeps putting one foot in front of the other. For her, if things go off track, she just firmly believes that it's meant to be, all's right with the world, and things will correct themselves again. A mantra such as this can make you quite resilient, I find, but it's certainly helped out somewhat by her ability to work very, very hard. As with many people I've spoken with, she came from adversity, and her parents divorced when she was just 10 years old, at which stage she went and lived with her dad. She said there was a lot of financial insecurity while she was growing up, where the topic of money was always a source of contention in her home. And looking back, she says they must have been quite poverty-stricken because they were poor enough to get handouts. Although thinking back, she said that she does not think it's a bad thing that she never had stuff, but what it probably did do was create a scarcity mindset in how she views money. By which I mean she developed the belief that there will never be enough, which created feelings of stress, fear and anxiety around money, and that is something that she has taken into adulthood. She was expected to get a job straight out of school. So at the age of 16, that is exactly what she did. She went to work and now at the age of 52, she's never really stopped. Her parents did instill in her that she needed to save and they always encouraged her to do this. They never explained the reasons behind saving. It was always just safer later or safer when you are older. And she took them up on that advice and has considered herself to be a saver ever since. Now a couple of key things happened in the late 1980s when she was 20 years old. Her mother worked as a real estate agent so owning your own home was something that Jen was always aware of and it was perhaps expected of her that she would head down this path. So this could become a reason for her saving. She had received a $10,000 payment from ACC from an injury she had sustained and this was to become her house deposit and she actually got into her first house with her boyfriend at the age of just 20 years old. Now he was better with money, she said, and he had a $20,000 deposit. So together they put down a 30 dollars deposit on a $90,000 house. They bought a two-bedroom unit in their hometown of Christchurch, they rented one of the rooms to a friend, and then they set about doing some good old-fashioned DIY to their fare. Now that's something else that her family taught her, to get stuck in and turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. She said that in those days, like today, the real estate market generally increased over time, so she knew that the house would appreciate in value, which would let her sell up this home and then put her money into her next house. She said that this is what she thought you should do, and that every house was a stepping stone to the next. Buy cheaply, do it up, sell it on, and buy the next one. She noted something I have often thought, that our love of property seems to be taught from birth and that we are quite honestly told that there is no other option to get ahead. Back then, other investment options would certainly have been available to her, but they were harder to come by, and thankfully things are quite different today. But she did try to diversify early in life because the second pivotal thing to happen was that she said that she got sucked into investing into an AMP investment fund, where she began investing money from her weekly wages because she knew even in her early 20s that saving for her retirement was a good thing to do. That's why she got started. And she was to continue this regular investment for about 30 years, up until quite recently. However, the problems with these types of investments and the provider themselves were not to show themselves for many years. Just a few years ago at the age of 49, she started to educate herself about investing and it was then that she realised just how locked into the scheme she now is because of the fund she chose, she can't access her money until she turns 55. Yet the fees she pays or the total fund charges are a shockingly high 2.68%. She said that over the years, the fund has made money, but she has lost so much more money due to the fees AMP have been charging. They have been dragging down her investment returns. And I'll come back to this shortly. So these two types of investments, property and this crappy AMP fund, saw her set on a path that she continued with right up until she had somewhat of an epiphany at about the age of 49, back in 2017. She decided that she wanted to retire from work at the age of 55, which is just over two years away from when I recorded this episode. And now this goal has become her singular focus. But let's go back to that first property that she purchased with her boyfriend back when she was just 20 years old. Well, she ended up married to that boyfriend and because both of them always had an appreciation for money and how to use it, they went into home ownership with a goal to pay the mortgage off. And they sold that property, bought another, did it up, sold it off, bought another, did it up, sold it off, you get the idea. And she recalled that by property number four, they were mortgage free. The renovation of a property became a job and a lifestyle of sorts that had a payday when they sold it. And every time they sold it, they ploughed all of their money into the next house. And of those homes, she said that only half of them sold for more than they paid. But she loves renovating and making a house a home, building a garden and what have you. So the do-ups were always done more for love than anything else. And from a financial standpoint, she never actually counted what they spent and what they made. Which is pretty common in New Zealand from what I've noticed. And I think that if people actually did some math around housing, that they might feel a little less in love with it sometimes when they realise that they can actually be quite a cost to own. But as the years went on, they did actually build up the equity with each home they had. And I think the point that I'm trying to make is that this seemed not to be their primary goal. They were just living life and moving houses when they felt they had outgrown their current home. A byproduct was equity after all their costs had been taken into consideration. In 1999, she was made redundant from her insurance job in Christchurch, and she received a redundancy payout based on her 15 years of working there. Plus, she had been in a superannuation scheme that paid dollar for dollar, something that is more or less unheard of now. So, using this money, her and her husband bought a section on Waiheke Island up in Auckland, and they were to go on and build a one bedroom holiday home upon it. Around the year 2000, they moved to Auckland and they bought a nice home, mortgage free but soon after this her marriage ended, meaning that all of the wealth they had accumulated by fixing up old houses and moving on to the next one had to be halved. Now divorce is a sure far way to halve your net worth, but she is thankful that at this point she was in her 30s, so thankfully had the energy and the time to come back from the huge financial hit she took. She follows a website called ESI Money. And she said that one of the things that is regularly mentioned is that you don't want to have a relationship fail and get divorced because when you do, everything you have goes to half and that is a big financial blow to recover from. In Jen's case, at least they did have assets that they owned to split in half. And it was at this point during our chat that I could hear Jen's grit and determination start to come out. Although they retained the Waiheke Island holiday home and went on to share it jointly, But separately, if you know what I mean, the nice Auckland home was sold and the profits were split between them. And using this money, Jen immediately looked back down the housing ladder and bought herself an ex-state house on a main road and started, you guessed it, doing it up. She has that asset that we all need to succeed, a really strong work ethic. So she also started full-time study for a degree in landscape architecture while slogging her guts out to do this house up. And she said that she had good builders helping out, a helpful boyfriend too, but that she also worked her ass off, saying that some days after studying, then renovating, she was so tired she could barely hold a conversation. And after three to four years, she sold this property and doubled her money on it, at which point she bought her ex-husband out of the one-bed holiday home on Waiheke Island. And one of the reasons for moving out there was because by now she had a child born in 2008 with that helpful boyfriend of hers, but that relationship was to end when their child was just two and a half years old. She was told by friends that when you have a child, time will speed up, you only have one chance to enjoy that time together, so she chose to move to Waiheke and have time with her child. She said it was such a struggle, finding work was hard, for a time she was receiving sole parent support from the government to get by, but she said that the hardest thing is that you are so on your own as a single parent and those early years are hard, hard graft. And she wanted to say to the single mums and dads out there that if you keep your kids at the top of your priority list, it is hard work, but you can have both. You can move ahead financially in order to look after yourself and you can also look after your kids. There is a balance there and if you think you want to have both, you can work out a way to do it. So she actively thought to herself and she advised all the single mums out there to think how can I have both and she said she changed her mindset to think abundance and that being a great mum and spending time with her child and getting ahead financially is very important and doable. Now as her daughter reached school age Jen wanted to be back in Auckland and closer to her child's dad so she sold the property and immediately bought a two-bedroom unit the middle one of three in Auckland, and did it up again. So life has a habit of repeating sometimes and she returned to the type of property that she started out in all those years ago. She had learned to buy what she can afford without stretching herself too hard financially and when she was searching for a property she was looking for the do-up and the opportunity to add value. She said it was made of concrete block, it was small, ugly and very well worn and it took the prize as the dirtiest house she had ever bought It was so bad, she said, that the mould had actually eaten into the aluminium joinery. Now as with many of the houses she had owned, she basically camped in it until she could get it up to a habitable standard, but that's just what you have to do sometimes. She wanted to make it quite clear that she didn't just sit in a house, do nothing and wait for the capital gains to make the money. She always bought a house that was right for this point in her life and she made it better while she lived in it and what always pushed her to sell was needing to find a house that was more appropriate for what stage of life she was at. By this time it was about 2013 and she could see that the housing prices in Auckland were starting to take off. She had paid $300,000 for this two-bedroom unit and she sold it for $450,000 and her thinking was that the bigger the house she could buy, the bigger her capital gains would be when she sold it. By this stage of the conversation, I'd actually started to lose count of how many houses she'd had, but it didn't really matter anyway. The point being that she had always used housing to leverage into the next property, and she moved about to find the house that was appropriate for her stage of life. She likes architecture and property, she likes old houses and villas in particular, and for her, home ownership was part job and part lifestyle. And because she is a person who can delay gratification, the payday came when she sold that property. And listening to her story, it all sounded like an awful lot of hard work to me, but maybe I'm lazy. Now, in 2015, she went to three banks looking for a mortgage, and third time lucky, the ANZ took her on. What this low-income, solo mother was looking to do was take a risk and get into a bigger house, and to do this, she needed lending. So she bought a villa in Auckland. Her mum moved in and paid her rent for the first year and a half. She also took in international students as a source of income, as well as, once again or yet again, she worked her butt off as she did it up. She said she took on a big risk to do this, but she said that she will take risks if she thinks that in the end it will make her comfortable, but that she still has to be able to sleep at night. There is no substitute for actually doing it, and you can make all of the mental preparation you like, she said, but you actually have to sometimes just go out and do it, And this weighing up of risk comes from the job she used to have all those years ago back in Christchurch of working in the area of insurance. And when she was looking to cover people, she would consider the worst thing that could happen. So she said maybe that is what has informed her risk taking throughout all these years. She took on lending of $150,000, some fixed interest and some floating, which may not seem like a lot to some, but with her low income, and at the time of application, she actually had no job. It was her government support payment plus rent from her mum and rent from international students that got her over the line. She was a risky proposition for any bank to take on, but what she lacked in job security, she more than made up for in sheer determination. Now, it's hard to know what event is laying in wait around the corner, so when a bank is weighing you up for a mortgage, they are taking all they can into account. With her lending being dependent on her having a couple of international students at the time, what situation would she now be in if she still had her mortgage? Because what ended up happening for Jen was that when the coronavirus pandemic hit us in 2020, her students left the country, taking her income with them. Thankfully, she had factored such an event into her plan and fortunately she was debt-free by the time the scenario actually happened. But these are the things you need to think about when you borrow money off someone else. She said that even when she ran through worst case scenarios, she knew she could pay her house off. Every single day started with her looking at her bank account before she got out of bed. She would look at the interest her mortgage had cost her the day before, which would instantly make her feel sick. From there, she would plan her day, which would involve funneling every cent she could spare into making additional payments onto the floating component of her mortgage. And to quote her directly, because it shows how steadfast she was. She said that she put every red cent onto that effing thing and that was her focus every single day. She said it was total immersion. She was working 20 hours a week in a minimum wage job but she would work every public holiday that she could for extra money and any time she could get extra hours she took them. So by cobbling together her working, her mother's rent and the rent paid by international students she made her last mortgage payment in 2017. She said it gave her a huge sense of relief, and on that final morning when she woke up and checked her bank balance to see that the mortgage had disappeared, she took a screenshot of it and thought, thank God that's gone. She remains in the same home today, and it's valued at about $1 million. She bought it when her daughter was 7 years old, and she paid it off when her daughter was 9. And she is proud of herself that she went from being a new mum who was on a benefit to working hard and owning her own home. So in effect, it took her about 39 years to reach this point. So yes, housing certainly works, but it's a slow burn. And she said that when she reached the age of 49, she started to freak out that life was half over and she was still just scraping by, constantly trying to get on a rung further up the ladder. And it was because of this that she started looking for information. And that's what got her thinking about diversifying out of housing and looking at her whole financial picture and where she was headed. So she is by no means done yet. Owning her own home was just one piece of the puzzle, and that jolt she got at the age of 49 to do better so she could retire at 55 still has her fired up. Always a saver, ever since she made that last mortgage payment, she has been trying to accumulate as much in cash and investments as possible. And when we spoke, she was on the cusp of a big working week, because she has a routine of work and rest. When her child, who is now 12 years old, goes to spend time at the dad's house, week on, week off, Jen goes to work. When they return, she cuts back her hours. She is working for a guy who owns his own business and is a real grafter who typically works 12 to 15 hour days. So when Jen's child is with the dad, Jen also gets stuck in and works as many hours each day as she can manage. She said that it's extremely full on working long hours, but the role is very varied, and she firmly believes in making hay while the sun shines. It comes from her upbringing, she said. The next step after paying off her home was to work out what's next. So soon after becoming mortgage free, she actually tried to sell her home so she could downsize back to a two bedroom unit which she could own outright and which would free up a large amount of cash, meaning that she didn't have to work so hard. But her home was passed in at auction and she figured that this was the universe telling her to hold it for now. So she has stayed put because they have a home and security, which is appropriate for now. But given time, that is her plan, to sell up and release some equity from her home, which she can then invest and use the dividends it produces to supplement her income, meaning she can work less, or not at all. So instead of selling, she started researching, something that was completely new to her, investing in something other than property so she can actually get some diversification into her life and actually have some money invested that will return an income instead of it all being locked up in housing, something that far too many Kiwis are doing. Now she said the time had come to get serious and set herself up well for the rest of her life and prepare for a time which is just a few short years away where she can get away with working less. She has been working hard since the age of 16 and she is sick of it. She mentioned the ESI money website again where she said they say work if you want to but don't if you don't. Now this is not something that she has ever been able to give herself before, that freedom of choice to do what she wants with her day. And what I liked about talking to Jen is that she is getting ahead while single and on a low wage and I wanted to share her story as the last one in this series because I hear from a lot of people who are in a similar situation to her and her journey shows that it's not always what you make, it's how you spend it, plus how you find the hacks in life to give you a boost, like taking on international students. She has worked out that her expenses are $35,000 each year, and by that I mean it costs thirty-five grand a year or 2916 a month or $673 a week to run Jen and her child. And the only way you can work this out is by budgeting and writing down what you've been spending your money on. So if you are listening to this and thinking, ah, where do I start? Well, that is where you start. You write down where your money is going. So as long as she has the steady income coming in, she is fine to cover her regular expenses and anything surplus to this can now be used to invest. For the last couple of years, her income before tax has been about $45,000 a year from her day job where she works in admin and business support. So that's about $37,000 after tax. Added to this was income from international students, but that income has since dried up. Her regular income from her work has recently increased to $50,000 and her hope is that with all the extra work she is doing, it will go up to $60,000 a year before tax. The work is there if she wants it, plus she is being encouraged into new roles for the same employer, she just needs to work out how many hours each week are viable for her. And I find it fascinating that people can get hold of a completely new concept and just run with it. And the rest of our conversation flowed around what she has learned about investment. And I have to say, she really knows the lingo now. And we had a pretty vigorous discussion around her options because this woman is on fire, I tell you, when it comes to optimizing her wealth and making great use of every single dollar she earns in her day job so that once invested, it can return money to her in her retirement such a transformation is something I'm fortunate enough to hear about quite often via my blog The Happy Saver and it's so rewarding to see people who have once stumbled along become absolutely intentional about the decisions they're making around money. Her advice to someone who might be at the start of this journey or where Jen was just over three years ago, just keep learning and it will all become clearer. You can stop and take a breath along the way but still keep looking for information that will let you optimise and accumulate wealth for your future. Her biggest triumph, she told me, was the education she is currently doing around money. She said that since she had her freak out at the age of 49, she has gone hard out, researching, reading any blog, book or website that was relevant, and she has a total focus to educate herself and accumulate assets for retirement. It's not the dollar figure that she sees as her triumph. It's a thing she has discovered in the past three years and it's the distance she has come since her divorce about 14 years ago. And as far as her greatest financial flop, it's that AMP investment for sure. But on a personal level, it was the poor relationships she went into or put simply, hooking up with the wrong men. There is a huge financial and emotional cost if you are in a relationship with someone who is not on the same page and aside from halving her net worth, the costs are ongoing when you have an ex And children are involved. But she would say to others that there is a lot of help and support out there, so don't be afraid to put your hand up and ask for it. She recalls losing her job once, and she simply could not get out of bed for a week because she couldn't face having to overcome yet another hurdle. But she did get out of bed, and she just kept putting one foot in front of the other day after day. So she says, You can do it too. It just takes effort and probably a bit of compassion for yourself while you heal too. Now, life is a journey, she said, and you do the best you can at the time with the information you have, and as you acquire more knowledge, you can change your situation. Now, remember that A&P investment that she had paid into for all those years. When she had her freak out at the age of 49, she decided to withdraw her money from this fund and reinvest it into index funds. But no can do, I'm afraid. A&P has her locked in tight until the age of 55. And she now realises what a poor investment this fund has been for all of these years. Her initial thoughts when trying to understand this fund was confusion, but she said that when she dug deeper, she realised she can't get out of it without losing out even more with the type of break fee that they would charge, and it's not worth her time and energy to do it. But she was, however, able to stop contributions into the fund, and she has been able to withdraw 20% from it each year, which she has been doing for the last three years now. But when we spoke, there was still $40,000 in this fund. All she feels is screwed over by AMP, by both their service and this investment, and she is counting down the months until she can get rid of it. Now in regards to fees, I just wanted to give a quick explanation why this AMP fund and others like it are so terrible. And it's because of the impact of high fees on a portfolio. Because fees really do matter. And it's why so many people are choosing to skip investment firms, active fund managers and brokers and go straight to cheap index funds and ETFs. Now I took this example from a choosefi.com weekly email that I recently received and it says imagine you have $100,000 invested. If the account earned 6% a year for the next 25 years and had no costs or fees you would end up with about $430,000. If on the other hand you paid 2% a year in costs after 25 years," you would only have about $260,000. That's right, the 2% you paid every year would wipe out almost 40% of your final account value. 2% doesn't sound so small anymore, does it? So for AMP to be charging Jen 2.75% is no small thing and that is why she is so pissed off about it. Over the long life of her investment, it has had a massive impact on her balance. She calculated she has missed out on over $200,000. In a good year when a fund performs really well, people can justify the fee they pay, but in a bad year where the fund performance is low and they take their same whack of fees, it's a real drag on your returns. Compound that over 25 to 30 years and you are going to be seriously out of pocket, just like Jenna's, And it's exactly the same with your KiwiSaver. I took a quick look at my old KiwiSaver fund, which was the ANZ Growth Fund, and they are charging 1.4% in combined fees, as opposed to my current fund, which is charging 0.45%. Now, it might not sound like much of a difference between the two, but over the course of my lifetime, had I stayed with ANZ, they were going to gobble up hundreds of thousands of my dollars. Their higher fee would have had a significant impact on my account balance because of the compounding nature of fees. Fees matter, and don't let anyone fool you otherwise. Jen has her KiwiSaver with simplicity in a growth fund, which coincidentally has that um, fee of 0.45%, with a current balance of about $70,000, where she contributes 3% from her wages. And she said that it's getting well-fed these days because of all the extra hours that she is doing. She used to contribute 10% from her wages, but at the age of 51, she thought, hang on a minute, as she realized that this was a mistake because she wants to stop work early, too early to receive government superannuation or have access to her KiwiSaver. By boosting her KiwiSaver, she realized she was actually locking her money in and could not access it until she turned 65. As soon as she realized this, she cut her contribution down to 3%, matched by her employer, and instead diverted some of her paycheck to other investments. She started to use the investing platform InvestNow a couple of years ago because at that time it was the only way she could find to invest into the Vanguard fund that she wanted but now she said with Hatch coming on board she is switching to them. She's really looking for the lowest fees possible and from her research that is Hatch Invest. She has become much more aware of fees. She calls herself a fees hound now. So she was really seeking to invest as directly as possible into Vanguard funds with the expense ratio of something like 0.08%. So although she has built up her invest now to have about $100,000 in it, when we spoke she told me that she is now actively selling it down to zero and transferring all of that money into Hatch Invest because of their lower and transparent cost structure and she fully understands their buy-sell fees and how exchange rates impact her investment as well. Now with Hatch, she currently holds the Vanguard Total World Stock ETF. The ticker code is VT and also has the Vanguard Growth ETF and the ticker code is VUG. And since reading about how dividends play a large part in retirement income, she has recently started with a small holding of just $1,000 in the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, which has a ticker code of VYM. She is now also actively contributing to each of these funds plus moving money across from InvestNow and is definitely considered to be an aggressive investor with all of her investments going into equities that by their very nature are quite volatile. And I asked her if she were given $10,000 right now, what would she do with it? Jen would put the whole lot in the Vanguard Growth ETF. She said she would wait for it to show red, showing that the price had dropped and press buy now. Jen said that now that she knows what she knows about index fund investing, There are no other options that make any sense to her apart from this. It's a no-brainer in her opinion. And I have to say, I agree with her. When I discovered a way to invest that took out the middleman, I too was blown away. She has always had an appreciation for how money works, but the cost of investing or getting into that market, it seemed so unapproachable and was just too prohibitive. She knew family members that were share trading, but it was big money, big risk and many losses Plus she never had any spare money to invest. Now she is just so happy there are so many other viable options to grow your wealth that don't include housing and you can start investing with just your spare change if that is all you have. Now just as an aside, I often get asked the question from those who have read the book by JL Collins called The Simple Path to Wealth. If we can get the index fund he recommends, which is the Vanguard US Total Stock Market Index, also referred to by its ticker code VTSAX over here in New Zealand? Well, the equivalent fund via Hatch is the Vanguard US Total Stock Market Index with a ticker code VTI, which is exactly the same. It's just listed as an ETF and has no minimum investment amount and a tiny expense ratio of just 0.04%. So when the share market took a tumble in March of 2020, Jen was totally engaged and watched it with very keen interest. She said she understands how it works now and she knows she can stick with it, handle the volatility and the risk that comes with equity investing. She noted down what the drop was every day and just observed how she felt. She kept investing and she certainly didn't sell. Her investments have now bounced back up, but she knows that with a global pandemic on the loose and questions around leadership in the US and more things than we really have time to mention, that the volatility is not over. And she's okay with that. She understands that in the history of the share market it only goes up but you have to ride out the drops along the way and that's why any money invested in the share market needs to be there for a long time to ride out those drops. Note too that she does not buy individual companies. That's far too much risk with a high chance of failure. She keeps a bit of cash on hand in her bank as an emergency fund but it's a very fine balance for her because By keeping cash it's a drag on her investing she says because she is trying to accumulate as much as possible. Currently she has about $210,000 invested and she is trying to grow this quickly so it's a struggle holding enough cash in case of emergency and therefore missing out on time in the market and she has to carefully control her desire to watch the share market and try to time purchases by skimming cash out of her account and investing it. She knows too that as she reaches her retirement date of 55 years old she should be holding in her view about a year's expenses as cash just in case there is a share market drop around then. She does not want to have to be forced to sell anything at a time when the market might be down and I think the point of telling you all this is to show that she is very much thinking about all of the options available to her. She is putting the personal into personal finance and thinking carefully about her own situation which is a constantly moving target. So I wondered if there was anything in regards to money that was keeping Jean awake at night and what it is is the constant narrative in her head as she thinks through numbers, scenarios, possibilities and tweaks she could make and I can so relate to this as I'm exactly the same. Remember that the first thing she used to do every morning was check her bank balance. She said now it is just the numbers going round and round in her head that are keeping her up at night as she works through each investment in her mind and the value of her home and that rapidly approaching 55th birthday. But I think that the longer she is an investor the more she'll just chill out about all of this and will just settle into a pattern of automated investing where she is just a calm passive investor. And that comes back to the point of all this. She said that in the end the numbers are meaningless to others It's what it's buying you that is the important thing and that is the freedom that financial independence will give her. She is buying her freedom $1 at a time. So what about the day-to-day stuff? What are her three main financial habits or the things that she just automatically does? Well for Jen, instinct number one is always to save. Number two, she is always aware of what she is spending and she knows the value of a dollar. When she got back to work after she'd had her child She was earning less than being on the government benefit. It cost her to work, so she knew she had to make her money stretch. But for her own self-worth and sense of accomplishment, she would always prefer to work for her money. So that meant that they didn't eat a lot of meat because that was expensive. It meant no alcohol because there was no room for it in the budget. And she recalled sitting down with a budgeting advisor, and she had mentioned that she had bought one lotto ticket because it was a major draw that week. She was soundly told off for buying that ticket and that was a big moment of embarrassment for her and he said to her, don't do it again, so she didn't. So if someone with experience and knowledge is telling you something because they know from experience what they're actually talking about like this budget advisor did, then listen to them and do it. And number three, if it's the right thing to do, then also do it. She had made a pact with a friend whose child was born at the same time as her own that when they turned five, they would go to Disneyland together. And despite everything I've just told you about how hard she worked and how much she has gone without, well, this was a priority and they did it at a cost of $7,500. They went to Disneyland. But this fitted in with her overall plan and she had five years to save and plan for it. And by setting aside $28 a week for five long years, she made this magical experience happen. She's still not perfect, she said in the top tip here. None of us are, or ever will be. Um, she did trade in her old car for a new small one, something she does regret doing, buying a new vehicle. But she said at least she paid cash for it and didn't put it on finance. Having since read many blogs that calculate the cost of buying new, she can see the error of her ways, but lesson learned, and she won't do the same thing again. She shops at Pack and Save, but goes there as little as possible. She eats in season and cooks with fresh food and not processed, and all up she spends about $125 each week. They don't go out for dinner, but they will go out for a coffee and a cake or out for lunch, but she said that she is quite health conscious and will likely eat an egg on toast before they go out, and that way just $20 will cover their outing. And I don't want to sound cheap, or maybe I do, Um, that's a good cost-saving hack right there for those who are trying to clear debt cut expenses and get ahead financially, eat before you go out. That way you are not tempted by an expensive menu because you are already full but you can still order a coffee or a drink with your friends and going out for lunch instead of dinner is always a cheaper option too. Thinking ahead for her own child who is currently just 12 years old, she asked how is her child supposed to afford a house at Auckland prices given I should point out that Jen herself has actively ridden this market up. Jen says that the whole landscape of shares versus housing has to change, and she sees a total turnaround away from housing and into the share markets instead as a way to build wealth and support the economy too. She said that when people go to work every day and they work their butts off for a company that is listed on the share market, no wonder the markets can't help but go up. There is so much innovation out there with companies striving to grow and succeed and return money to their shareholders and their employees. So that's where the future lies for her own child, she thinks. The sticking point is getting the money to invest in shares and I can see why the housing market is so worthwhile to many. They can borrow money cheaply, buy a house and get all of the profits when they sell. With the share market you can only put in the money that you actually have. However, Jean said that with interest rates so very low she said the temptation is there for her to borrow money against her house to invest. And that's one of the calculations that is keeping her up at night, borrowing $50,000 to invest. From my point of view, while this is possible, and if you can find a bank who will let you do this, it's still trapping you in that cycle of debt. And by educating people to start investing very early in life, then once you can reach a tipping point of money under investment, will time in the market and cumulative interest start to have a real snowball effect in themselves So personally, I'm not a fan of borrowing money to invest in the share market. Now I wondered if she had someone in her life who she can openly talk about money with now. She said that her and her boss do talk about money and he was there and happy to chat when she hit 49 and fell over with her what on earth do I do now moment. He's an engineer, he's smart, a risk taker but bordering on being a speculator or gambler she said. So they go about things in a different way. But he is still an excellent resource for her. She talks to her sister, or she tries to, but she watches her eyes glaze over and says she can see her nodding off when she gets into discussing numbers. So sadly, she said, she has always been a nobody. She feels so different to the rest of the world with her thinking, and she feels quite alone in her financial journey. And that was really hard for me to hear because listening to her, I thought, well, this woman is such a standout example to so many others in her situation. She's a freaking unicorn in my opinion and to use an example of the difference between her and her friends that I can completely relate to is that she spent $200 on a coffee machine for her home while her friend spent $2,500. So it's hard to find people in your peer group to chat about this with. It's one of the reasons I started my own podcast and blog to connect with others who happily talk about this stuff. So if this is you struggling to connect with someone just start joining up with forums that will give you the opportunity. So Instagram has a huge personal finance community as does Facebook and Reddit so just begin searching would be my advice. So what is her money elevator pitch or a sentence that would sum up her approach to money? Jean said that if she were in an elevator and she had to give such a pitch there would be total silence. She would be as quiet as a mouse in the elevator. Which that surprised me, but it comes back to her feeling like a nobody. She said that she has been accused of being frugal, like in a negative and derogatory manner, that she should feel shame about, with it being a bad thing having the mindset that she has around money. She has repeatedly been looked down upon. So, in the elevator, she would just shut up, and that's just part of this uncomfortable thing about money. But here is the thing I've noticed those people who choose to be careful with their money because they actually have a vision for their future that extends beyond their next pay period, actually do not feel like they are missing out in any shape or form by reducing their spending and consumption, so they in turn can't understand why people are looking down on them. Not spending money is not a chore to her, because it's getting her to her goal of retiring in just two years time, and that's a good thing. Therefore, She is mostly going it alone, as many people do in New Zealand when they have their aha moment and want to get themselves sorted financially. And like the rest of us, she is turning to books, blogs, and podcasts to help learn. The book, Quit Like a Millionaire No Gimmicks, Luck, or Trust Fund Required, by Christy Shen and Bryce Leong, is a book that Jen totally related to because in the book, Christy really knows the value of a dollar. Now, you can find this book, she said, on the Auckland Library app and she really recommends using this app to anyone in the Auckland region too, as there are a ton of great money resources available there. The book Financial Freedom, A Proven Path to All the Money You Will Ever Need by Grant Saboteur was a useful read to her as well, as it made financial independence seem achievable. Now there was also a quick blog post I wanted to mention by Mr Money Mustache, and that shows the true cost of that new car she once bought, and that real cost is huge. The JL Collins blog post called Why Your House is a Terrible Investment really hit home to her too, and it's a post well worth searching for on his blog for sure. She likes the Kiwi blogs Zealand.com and also MoneyKingNZ.com. When she wakes up on a Saturday morning, she reads the Mary Holm column in the New Zealand Herald, or you can find it on her website MaryHolm.com. Plus, I've already mentioned that she likes the blog ESI Money, She's on his email list and finds him to be a really good resource. And by the way, in case you were wondering, like I was, ESI stands for Earn, Save, Invest. Right, now before I wrap up, I have another quick message from Hatch, today's sponsor. Thanks again to Hatch for supporting today's episode. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. Now I started this podcast off by saying that Jen wants to retire in just over two years time at the age of 55 and by retire I mean she might quit work outright or she might continue to work but do less hours. The point being that work will become optional for her at the age of 55. Since paying off her house in Auckland, now with a value of about a million dollars, she has been steadily building up her investments into low-cost passive index funds and combined with her KiwiSaver, they now total in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. She has worked out that she needs $35,000 a year to live, and when you times that by 25, it gives her a retirement savings number of $875,000 that she needs to have invested in assets that she can access that will return her an income via dividends and capital gains. Her current net worth is just over $1.2 million, so by dollar value alone, Technically, she has enough money to now retire. However, the majority of her net worth is still tied up in the wrong place in her biggest illiquid asset that's her house, and it simply does not return her any income that she can actually use. So, her plan will involve trading way down in house when the time comes, and she has no hesitation in moving back into a two bedroom unit if that's what it takes to free up enough cash that she can then put into her Vanguard Investments that will total $875,000 and then provide her an income and make work optional for her. Then she plans to use the 4% rule, which will allow her to pull money out of her investments while leaving the capital intact to give her an income for the rest of her life. Of course, when she reaches the age of 65, she will also start to receive government superannuation as well, which will mean that she pulls less off her investments meaning that they will actually continue to grow as she ages. And what I think I want you to take away from this podcast is that, yes, Jen did well out of housing, but not just because the prices went up. Early on, she worked out that you need to actually own your home, and that way, any gains are all yours. But you will see from her story that it took a really long time to grow her equity in houses. But the next key thing is that she has diversified into low-cost investments that unlike a house, actually will produce an income that she can use to cover expenses and when they build high enough will actually be able to give her a full income. And the other absolutely key takeaway is that even though she only got intentional about this diversification just three short years ago, her progress has been huge. So I want you to see that this could be you, it really could be, no matter what your income is. You just have to educate yourself as to the possibilities out there, work out your retirement number and actively work towards it. It's incredible what you can achieve with hard work, perseverance and dogged determination and Jen is one of the best examples I've seen of this. So thanks Jen for giving me a couple of hours of your time. I just love how even when things went a bit pear-shaped, you kept your hopes up, you kept your mindset of abundance and you always said to yourself, no matter what the situation was, that everything is working out perfectly. And I can't wait to get that email or phone call from you on your 55th birthday when you say, I'm done, Ruth, work is now optional. So that's all from me this week. And that actually ends another series of the Happy Saver podcast. They are a lot of work to create, so I'm taking a break, but I promise that Johnny and I will be back with more money journeys of Kiwis. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And if you feel the urge, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast, and I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and farno, and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until the next series, happy saving.